just by being a cop for so long, I have locked away many fathers and mothers and separated them from their children, hundreds of them, you know, and that's something I had to do. It's because it's my job and it was necessary in a lot of ways too. But maybe it's time for me to do some other stuff, help the community in a different way. My name's Sharad Chatterjee and you're listening to Longest War. We are live. Zara, thanks for joining us. Hey, how are you? All right, so let's get into it, man. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna be blunt. You're the only Indian dude I know <laughs> from the army. Yeah. I didn't meet any other Indian guys. So let's talk about you were born in India. Yep. What part of India? Uh, I was born in Calcutta, which is the eastern part of India, the seat of the old British Raj. So the huge last city, right? Huge city, comparable to New York, but really, really poor. Is that bigger than like Mumbai? Oh, it's much bigger in population. Uh, actually, it may have changed now. Mumbai has really become an economic hub. But when I was there, it was the biggest city by population. So by it's far. either one or two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and uh, when did you come to the US? Uh, so I was in sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade. I think I was, yeah, sixth grade, sixth grade. And what? 12. Why did your parents come here? So my uh, mom and dad divorced, which in Indian culture and Hindu culture is not okay, especially back then in the 90s. So in order to have a normal like upbringing, you kind of have to leave because of the societal systems in place. Uh, my mom worked for Alcoa and she was basically like, let's transfer to the US division. And they were like, okay, come to Pittsburgh where our headquarters is. Is so that easy? For her, we were very, very lucky. How much English did you know? I didn't. Uh, so yeah, you get no. to sixth grade knowing no English. Yeah, it, it was tough. Uh, so in India, you have two boards of school. There is an English board school and a Hindi board school, which is called a classical school. So my brother went to an English board school and I went to a classical school. So I didn't learn English until I came here. It's weirdly enough, I knew all the stuff that you would learn here. I knew science, I knew math. I just didn't know how to do it in English. Right. So by eighth grade, I was kind of okay. Did you have to take like ESL classes? Or the ESL didn't exist then. Oh, this shit. was pre-ESL. This was just like... They just threw you in a class? I was just in a class. And I you had didn't no speak the idea. language? I did not speak the language. Uh, only class that I like did somewhat okay in was math class. and Because uh, numbers are numbers. Numbers right? are numbers. You know, yeah. Yeah, they look the same. They work the same. And when I would go home, like I would sit down and like open up like a literal, like a dictionary with Hindi to English words. And I would like learn, you know, and by the end of sixth grade, I was kind of okay. By the end of eighth grade, I was normal. Did your mom know English? Yes. So yes. she could help you out? Yeah, she could. I mean, like she worked in business uh, in India and it, for an American company. So she knew, you know, everything that she needed to know. And she was basically able to like, if I came across something that I didn't understand, I could ask her. There are still things I don't understand. Like I don't understand punctuation well. I'll just randomly put commas after I write a paper. I don't really know what they do. Like semicolons do. Yeah, like, what's yeah, it yeah, for? yeah. I just know they go in there and I'll just randomly put them around and uh, I'll have somebody edit my paper and put them in the right places. English is weird, man. English like, is weird, weird, stupid rules. Yeah. And like we have way too many words. Like how many words in Hindi? Like the word "sun." Yeah, yeah. So totally yeah, different meanings uh, in different contexts. Yeah. So we don't have that, right? Uh, we don't have one word that means like eight different things, and it's just a, based on context. So that was really, really hard. I, I misused a lot of words. <laughs> I had a problem with like swear words at first too, because like if you drill down to the meaning of certain swear words, 
like one version's a swear word and yeah, the other right. isn't and I would use the wrong version and people would get upset I'd be like what are you talking about like this is what this means if I say it this way you're fine with it uh, and then like after a while I was like oh okay you've chosen this word to be bad right but this other word that means exactly the same thing is fine yeah like okay. saying the dog crapped in your yard's okay but yeah. the dog shit in your yard that's not okay for that is not to okay say. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta find that out the yeah, hard way yeah other than the language like what was kind of culture shock was it culturally like uh, like I always imagined America to be uh, the land of like people with really big trucks and big buildings and a lot of like wealth. And it was true. You know, yeah. I came here, I was like, look at these people with these giant trucks. <laughs> you know, these buildings are huge and people have a lot of money. Uh, so it was pretty accurate. Uh, some of the things I didn't understand that in India, I came from a completely homogenous, you know, population. And then I came here. And the idea of race was very, very foreign to me. So when we first moved here, this is pre-internet, so you couldn't like figure out was what was a good neighborhood or a good school or a bad school. So we just picked on proximity to my mom's office. So we moved to Hazelwood, mm. and uh, I went to a school called Gladstone, which no longer exists. Right, you know, for the first not a great years. school, not a great school, <laughs> and. Uh, that well, kind of helped in a way because, like, even though I was pretty far behind, so was everybody. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, the fact that it was... sucks, but it's, it is a benefit. Yeah, it was a benefit. So, like... You weren't the only one that couldn't read English. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, to say that it sounds like it's crass shitty, to yeah, say it's that, shitty, but, but it's absolutely true, you know? It would have so, been hard if they put you, like, in a magnet school. Yeah, yeah. Like, if I, if I like, eventually I went to high school in Mount Lebanon. If I had started off in Mount Lebanon, I would have had a much more difficult time because of the competition I would have faced. Right. Uh, at Gladstone, like, the teachers were prepared for, like, a student who didn't know anything. So even though there was no ESL program, they were like, oh, we know how to, like, help you and, like, get you through this. Yeah. Which was great. How, did, how long did you guys live in Hazelwood? Uh, two years. Two years. Did you like it there? Yes and no. Uh, I liked it there until I moved to Mount Lebanon, and then I was like, "Oh, that was bad." Yeah, yeah this is this is much nicer now. Uh, but compared to India, it was still very nice. I was yeah. like, "This is great," you know, when I first got there, and then like super diverse neighborhood too. Uh, back then, it was. Right now, it's like mostly turning into an abandoned neighborhood. It's I guess it's revitalizing now, but there was a period in the early to mid two thousand. It was like a lot of people left Hazelwood. Yeah. With the Almano uh, development and all the philanthropic money. Yeah, it's coming in. Yeah. So it was a diverse neighborhood. Uh, and, you know, all my friends were were black because most of the school was black. Yeah. And they would kind of, like, tell me. They were like, hey, like, you know, like, just be careful. Like, white people don't like other people who are not white, you know. And I was like, that's nonsense, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but when I moved to Mount Lebanon, I definitely saw a dose of that, you know. But, like growing like my first formative years in America in Hazelwood I could say there was very minimal racism they were just like here's another poor kid who doesn't know what he's doing right he's one of us now right you know? so it was interesting what year did you guys come here uh I would say it was 2000 uh, not 2000 1995 or 6 95 95 or 6 okay. yeah so that was yeah that was that was probably like at Hazelwood's like lowest point yeah the school like Closed soon afterwards, and I was filled with asbestos. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a it was a terrible building. I, even coming from India, I remember thinking like this building is in bad, bad shape. And India is not known for their no, great no, 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 no. Yeah, we have no codes or anything like that. But even like then, the Taj Mahal's dope. But like, yeah, the rest of it's you don't pretty, want to live yeah, anything else. Ramshackly, and I was like, this building is totally ramshackly. Uh, 
And then I went to Mount Lebanon, which is like one of the nicest schools in the country. And I was like, wow, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. And then I was immediately realized that I'm academically totally behind too. So I was like, oh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. These kids are really, really smart and I need to catch up. So that was like the eighth grade? That was uh, eighth grade, ninth grade, yeah. So you were going into high school? Going into high school. So was yeah. high school a struggle for you? High school, my first year was a struggle. Uh, just because like I had left, you know, uh, like Gladstone with good grades by the time I'd finished, they're like, oh, we should put him in all the honors programs. But the honors programs at Gladstone and Mount Lebanon are very, very different. Sure. So I was just like, yes. And then I, I failed like all my classes. Right. And I was like, I really don't know English. <laughs> uh, so I kind of readjusted. And by the time high school was finished, I was on track and back in a lot of the honors classes. But like the middle period was a real challenge. Was it, how was it for your mom seeing you struggle like that? Was it uh, difficult? Was she hard on you? Like what? No, I mean, like I, I don't have a prototypical Indian mom. Uh, I'd say she's totally atypical where she was kind of like, Okay, I didn't want to say it. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Prototypical Indian parents are very like helicopter parents, right? My mom was not. She was basically like, you know your responsibilities, now meet them. And she was like, you're on your own. Which is kind of like important because she was also a single woman trying to like provide for us. So right. she needed to be like focused at work. Uh, she ended up getting a MBA from CMU while, you know, while I was in high school. So she was really, really busy. She was like, I have created opportunity for you. Like I've taken you from Hazelwood to Mount Lebanon now achieve things. You right. Know? How many siblings do you have? I have a brother. I have an older brother. Older? How much older is he? He is five and a half years older. So he was done with school. He was college. Okay. He was college. Uh, so he went to Pitt for his undergrad. Then he got a master's degree at Pitt too. And then he went to Columbia for law school. And now he practices law in New York. Did you go right into the army after high school? So, yeah, yeah. Right after high school, I joined the army. It was kind of a surprise to my parents. So I was 18 my senior year of high school, so I didn't have to tell them that I was doing this. Right. And I specifically planned on not telling them. I have, like, mixed reasons for joining the army. 9-11 happened. You know, that was a big thing. Uh, previous to 9-11 growing up in India, we've had many, many terrorism events in India. Sure. You know, that are based out of Al-Qaeda. That is a you know, propagated by the Pakistani government and the Afghan government. So this is something I was well aware of, you know. The first time I saw a car bomb explode, I was like seven. You know, this was something I was kind of like always geared to like do. Kashmir was raging your whole yeah, life. Yeah, the right? whole life. Yeah, like I, I remember like, you know, riots and cars blowing up and like gunfire in the streets, you know, and you know, having a real terrorist presence, you know. And I was like, oh, it's happening in America now too. I was like, I should join the army. The second part was like, I was academically kind of behind, you know, I had caught up, I'd got into a good, I got into Pitt, the only school I applied to. Uh, but I was like, I don't know, like, is it gonna be the same situation as when I went from Gladstone to Mount Lebanon? Am I gonna get to college and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing, right. you know? Realize uh, you don't know English again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is, I'm not ready for this. So I was like, these couple of buffer years, you know, will be good. So I joined the army, but I joined the National Guard. Basically, I went to a recruiter and they were like, oh, do this, do that. And the National Guard recruiter was like the fastest. He was like, you join, you'll go to basic, you'll go to AIT and you will guaranteed deploy. This is in 2002 or three, like the war is like getting going. Yeah. She was like, it's gonna be exactly the same as active duty, but we'll give you more money. And I was like, okay, like, I cool. like money, yeah. you know, people like money. And were you a citizen? Uh, I was not. No, I was not a citizen. Uh, so 
little little error. I may have overstayed my visa a little bit, a little bit of overstaying <laughs> of the visa. Uh, my mom and brother were cool, but like, so your status and what you're doing matters. Like the fact that my mom was like high up in a big company, they were they like they were like, here's your citizenship. Like she didn't have to do much to get it. She like signed one piece of paper, mailed it in. Like her company sponsored her, and she got her citizenship. And that didn't trickle down to you guys. No, it didn't. And then my brother did something through Columbia, where he was like, I'm a student at Columbia, and they were like, here's your citizenship. I was just in high school, so yeah. they're like, "You are no, you like, you may have to go back. <laughs> you have underachieved." Uh, so uh, I joined the army. Uh, you don't have to be a citizen to join the army. Right. They don't really check that part of your life at all. If you have a social security number, which I did, you're kind of good. I remember guys in my unit, yeah, like getting naturalization, like getting sworn in as yeah. citizens, like in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like that uh, shit would happen all the time. Yeah, happened to me. You know, uh, I, I got my paperwork when I was in Iraq. My company commander sponsored me and you know, I got my paperwork and then I, when I was on leave, I went to the INS office here in Pittsburgh and then like became a citizen really fast, then flew back to Iraq. Was it, was it different going to Iraq like as a citizen as opposed to a uh, guy that was on a expired so, visa? Yeah, so like the guys in my platoon threw me like a little mini celebration, like welcome to being an American, you know? But other than that, no, no, it was, it was the same. Like, like I said, like terrorism is something that I'd faced, you know, growing up. And you were familiar with this enemy. I was like, familiar with this was, very specific yeah. Al Qaeda enemy, you know. So uh, this is something I wanted to do. Like me being a citizen or not, you know, is not. You're like fuck these guys. Yeah, like they're my, bad dudes. My like third grade teacher was like killed by an Al Qaeda terrorist, like pretty like right outside the school when we were like all playing. I remember getting like seeing her get shot by an AK-47 by someone who's a terrorist. So I was, this was something that I was going to do whether or not I was a citizen. So. so, and you were a medic, right? I was a medic. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to get back to that last one was plant a flag there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go to your mom and yeah. you're like, Hey, surprise. Yeah, yeah, I joined yeah. the army. Yeah. Uh, uh, how bad was the beating? Oh <laughs> uh, no. She was like, just like really, really silent. And like, she had the strangest, like, you know, response to it. And first of all, she was just like, okay. She was like, what do you need to do to get ready? You know? I was like, nothing, like I'm leaving in like a few days, you know, like there's nothing I can do to get ready at this point. And she was like, okay. And she was like, she was like, you're, you know, you're like, my uh, great grandfather died at Dunkirk, uh, the British Raj, a lot Mm -hmm. of Indian troops, you know, went to the war. Uh, And they were the ones left behind. They were the ones who were not evacuated. And she was like, you know, your great grandfather died in Dunkirk because he wasn't evacuated, you know, and the German soldiers didn't take the Indian soldiers as prisoners. They just shot them all. So I was like, I was like, this is not, you know, this is not the Raj. Things are different. So she was like, all right. She was like, okay. And then she was kind of okay with it. How old is your mom now? She's in her fifties. So when she was a little kid, was like right after British imperialism. Uh, she was born in I think fifty nine or fifty eight. So she she still felt like the ripples of it. But yeah, like yeah, not yeah. Necessarily, yeah, the, like. Like my grandfather was like more upset, you know, that yeah. like his father had been killed. And it's like when my, you know, great grandfather died, he wasn't like a foot soldier. He was like a colonel or something in the Indian army. He was like, right. you know, and he was still left behind. So she was just like a little apprehensive about that. Which but, is totally understandable. Yeah, yeah. So, but like, it was not the same situation. I, right. I will wholeheartedly say the least amount of, you know, racism I've ever faced was in the army. It is truly a place of equality. You know? Yeah, it's like a real meritocracy. Yeah, like, it's insane, like how like equal it is. Once you hit your unit, once you get to your platoon, like it's a truly a brotherhood. No one judges you by anything else 
other than your ability to soldier. The one thing that struck me, like, was a basic training. Like, mm-hmm. so you were also a cop later on. We'll yeah. talk about that some. You go to a shooting range. Yeah. It's always a black silhouette you shoot at, right? Yeah. Not in the army. Yeah. It's a green silhouette yeah. because we're all wearing green and they want to drill that idea into you that you were shooting. Yeah. At a person, a person just like you, yeah. and maybe on the other side, another that's soldier. A, that's yeah. a green, like that's a green body right yeah. there. Yep. Uh, and that's something that was always impressive to me that they had that because I mean, black target would have shown up, but it would have been easier to hit. Man. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. I mean, my partner and I went shooting last year, and uh, we went to Anthony Arms, and we couldn't buy a target that wasn't either a black silhouette or a black person. They were all like, crazy. She was man. just like, "Is there any like other choices?" They were like, "What?" <laughs> right. Like, this is it. Yeah. We don't. We, we, we just make a white one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. You know. <laughs> so you go to basic. Yeah. Where did you go to basic? I uh, went to Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Uh, and then down to what? Sam. Yeah. For medic school. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was great. I liked basic training. I, I was really lucky to have really like fun real sergeants. It was all male, which I think makes it easier in a lot of ways. You know. It was great. And then I went to Fort Sam, which is like, it's so long for medics. They kind of just treat you like permanent party. Yeah. So like you can like go out on weekends and, you know, do whatever you want. Uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, AIT was pretty easy. Like you have like your classes to go to. And as soon as you're done with class, like hop in your car and go into the city. It's like in San Antonio. It's like yeah. you can see downtown yeah. from the military. It's one base. of the few bases that there's yeah. like cool shit to do yeah, outside yeah. of it. Yeah. So like as soon as we were done, I was like, I was off with the rest of the people having a good time. It was awesome. How old were you? 18, uh, 19? By the time I was in AIT, I think I was 19. Uh, those You remember those old army IDs were basically like just a piece of paper that was laminated yeah. and you just took it apart and changed your age, Yeah, which everybody knew was fake, but like no one cared. Right. So like I was going to every bar like everybody else, you know. So it was a good time for a 19 year old. Yeah, it was a good time for a 19 year old. So then how quickly did you deploy after that? So I came back and I came back to my guard unit here in Pittsburgh and uh, they were like, okay. Like, we don't know what's going on. Like, there's no, like, whole guard units that are deploying, but you're a critical MOS as a medic. You'll get picked up. You know, just chill out. And I was like, okay. I was like, you can volunteer me for the next, you know, requirement that when they're asking for medics. And then I went home and I was like, I have a couple of weeks. And then they called me like 45 minutes later. They're like, oh, you got selected. See ya, you know. So I was kind of like piecemealed uh, with another unit basically with an armor unit that was going to merge with uh, active duty unit. So I went to Fort Bliss, Texas uh, for this train up with uh, just a hodgepodge of different units, some active duty, some guard, some reserve. Uh, I didn't really get any train up because when I got there, they were like, oh, we have all these ranges going on and we have no medic. So like, just go live at one of those ranges. and Go be the range medic. Yeah, go be the range medic. So I just did that. Like I got a Humvee they were like this Humvee's yours you know this whole time so just take off so you're basically just giving IVs yeah. and Motrin and yeah. bullshit like that I went and talked to a doctor at the TMC and who was just like thank god we have another medic he was like I was gonna have to go out there if you didn't come you know <laughs> was this the PA yeah this was the PA yeah uh, so he was just like thank god you're here now get the hell out of here yeah you know? <laughs> go to the, go to those ranges and he gave me like a bag and a bunch of meds and were you like E3 I was an E3, yeah. Uh, so just went to a range and people were going through, different units were going through. I got to qualify in every single weapon system there is, which was fantastic. Uh, like weird stuff, I like fired a javelin, you know. Yeah, you know, like that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very expensive. I'm yeah, surprised they let me do It's like 100 grand a pop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, this is awesome. Uh, when like 
somebody needed, you know, like a medic overseas, they were like, okay, now you're gonna join up with this unit that's going and go over. So I ended up joining with a unit uh, that's uh, 103rd Armored. They're actually based out of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And I deployed with them and they got attached to the third ID. Uh, third ID was there, uh, no, first ID, first ID was there. And they kind of just were like, all right, these are the fill-ins and just break up your, you know, whatever, battalion to fill in wherever. Some of us went to this part of Iraq, wherever first ID needed people. So I kind of got lucky when this was happening uh, there was a scout recon platoon who didn't have a medic and they were like, we need somebody. You want to come, you know, be with us? The platoon leader later told me he thought I could speak Arabic. That's why he selected me. <laughs> but it was a huge disappointment for him later. Uh, yeah. yeah. He's like, that looks like an Arab dude. Yeah. Yeah. Pick him. yeah, yeah. He was like, he's going to be a medic and our translator. Uh, so, uh, like, bro, I just speak Hindi. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he like forced me to learn Arabic. Like when he realized I didn't speak it, he was like, then you will learn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I, that was your helicopter parent. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was like the best group of people I've ever worked with. They were all super high speed. It was first ID guys. Uh, this was first ID and a bunch of national guard guys got, got piecemealed into this. Uh, the national guard guys were actually better. A lot of them were like, just like, Western Pennsylvania, like hunters and stuff. Yeah, you know, good old boys. Yeah, good old boys. I mean, if you put a rifle in their hand, they were like amazing. They will kill know? three. They will kill plenty of things at yeah. three hundred meters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you know, in a reconnaissance platoon, it's not like you're doing small unit tactics and you're doing a lot of LPOPs uh, and you're doing some sniper work. So those guys sneaking were sneaking around. Yeah, the dark. sneaking around, and they all did great at Sierra School when they went and they came back, and you know, it was a really high functioning unit. Uh, it was great. Uh, did you have a lot of work as a medic? Unfortunately, unfortunately, we did. Uh, a lot of the people that you know, we shot. You know, my I'll give this to my platoon sergeant and platoon leader. They really wanted us to kill a lot of people, but at the same time, like once that was done, they wanted us to treat them humanely. They're yeah. like, if we shot somebody and they're no longer a threat, we will treat them. We will medevac them. We will not just let them like expire on the ground if they don't yeah. have to. So they strictly followed the rules. Of the yeah, like my platoon leader was like a very religious man too. He was just like, I will kill the enemy, but I will also do it in like the most humane way right. possible. So you're not going around double tapping guys. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Laying on the ground. Like, which really helped. Like I saw like other people after the deployment from different companies and different platoons suffer from like pretty severe PTSD. And I, no one in my platoon really had severe PTSD, even though we lost people in our platoon. People in our platoon died. People in our platoon were severely injured. I think something about having a moral compass that was completely enforced by the platoon sergeant and the platoon leader kind of saved us from that somehow. Yeah. You know? It makes uh, sense. Yeah. What's the distinction when you go to an Iraqi with a gut wound and it's just nasty versus one of your guys like with a gut wound is nasty? Does it, do you approach that differently or is it you just go to work and you don't think about so it? So I, I initially did. And let me correct that. So there is some PTSD as far as like combat trauma, but like the guilt. You right. Get. Like you see a lot of the veterans with like the guilt. I didn't do something that was right. None of us have that. Yeah. Uh, at first when I did, like I remember the first person I treated, like I was kind of like, oh, we don't know what to do. And like, I don't know if I should medevac this guy. And my platoon like leader like grabbed me up by my vest. He was like, you will fucking medevac this guy. He was like, we shot him and we will now, if we can, we will save him. So after that, I was just like, all right, I treat everybody the same. And that was kind of like, that was him. He, like, yeah. he would not allow anything less. So yeah, I mean, like we treated everybody the same. Uh, 
I don't know what happened once they got to the base. I know the doctor that we had on base was a really good guy, so I'm guessing he treated them really well, you know. But they were so. sent off to the detention facility to never yeah, see yeah, again. I think so. It wasn't so. a happy yeah. ending for them. Yeah, th- that part is a little troubling uh, to me now. So we would get intel from, like, whoever, right? Like, the uh, SF dudes, the ODA guys would have intel. Then, like, the weirdo CIA contractors who would, like, come back and be like, these are the HVTs, and, like, we have to set up LPOPs here, and if you see someone doing this, shoot them. And... Like, I don't know, I think seven or eight months into country, we realized it's a, just a lot of neighbors, like, snitching on other people that they didn't like. Yeah. So we were, like, settling we, scores. Yeah, that yeah. I'm, like, are we just killing and detaining people that are just, like, regular folks that are, like, having neighbor issues and property-related issues? But... I, I mean, mean, that was a huge problem in Iraq and yeah. Afghanistan, man. That's how, like, villagers settled, you know, decade-long family feuds. Yeah. Because they would just go, oh, yo, he's Taliban. Yeah. He's Al-Qaeda. Yeah. And then it was, uh, you know, uh, in Iraq, it's Alibaba, Alibaba, which means terrorists. And they would be like, okay. And then we would do something about it, you know. And then we'd be like, we don't know if this guy was actually a terrorist. Right. You know, this is just the intel we're given. And this is what is coming down from higher for, like, this is our mission. And you you're know? trying to win the hearts and minds. So, like, yeah, I mean, try to trust that the people coming to you with this information yeah. are doing it in good faith. Yeah, yeah. Like, you have to, like, believe in the system a little bit. And this is 2004, you know, 2005. This is, like... Shit was hot. Shit was hot. You know, we went from, like, no up-armored Humvees to, like, getting blown up enough. Like, we were, like, we need to, like, tear apart, like, our HESCO barriers and whatever and, like, weld sheet metal onto yeah. the Humvees, you know. Sandbags in the yeah, floor. Yeah, so, like, yeah. Like, you know, I remember having, like those talks like what do we do and what do we dismantle now to like attach to our humvee you know but by then we had 1114s yeah i think that's what they were called like the fully up armored humvees which were very very nice uh thank god for them uh i was in three direct blasts always with 1114 uh so if it wasn't for that i'd be very dead no tbis or anything that you know uh i don't know so being the medic you kind of get lost in that because Every time there was something, I was treating people and then I would medevac people. And then later I'd be like throwing up in the corner and be like, what day is it? You yeah. know? And they'd be like, well, you can't leave. It doesn't matter what day it is. Get yeah. back in the Humvee. You're not you're, getting you're, you're the only one we have, you know. You know, I, I don't you're know. Med- you're, your medic's like your turp, man. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't lose them. And you're all fucked. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't know what... Maybe. I, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, I was knocked unconscious a few times, you know. Uh, one, we were on a foot patrol and a blast went off and then I kind of like remember like seeing the flash and I remember waking up and just like being covered in dirt and then like feeling myself be like, I'm not hurt, you know, be like, I'm unconscious, but there's no holes in me. And then like looking over and seeing like other people are badly hurt. So, so I you got to get to work. Yeah, I got to do that. And then by the time like the medevac was over, it was like, I'm, I don't know what to do now. I'm yeah. just going to go back to base. <laughs> so how long was that tour? It was weirdly long because we outlasted three active duty you know deployments so there was the first id then third id came then the 101st came so uh when i was there i first joined this recon platoon and then they were like okay your tour is done it's been 11 months or whatever and then they were like but for the medic you're not because this new group coming and does not have one. Still short on yeah. yeah. So they were like, you have to stay. And for like the third time that happened, they were like, okay, well, whenever we get a replacement, you're out. You know, you'll, your end date will be random. So you spent some time with 101st while you were yeah. there? Yeah. They were good, but they were like tired of it. You know what I mean? They'd been there before and they were just like, 
Like we thought we'd like kind of dealt with this and like they'd been there during the invasion, which was super long. Those guys were the ones who were like indefinitely extended. And they're like, you'll be out of here in three months, eight months, year, yeah, 15 months, you know? And then they were back. They were like, we thought we'd dealt with this. And then the like this IED stuff had started. They're like, this is something like, they kind of felt like responsible for it. They were like, we didn't like kill the right people or whatever. Right. And they're like, now we have these IEDs and people are getting killed left and right. So they were like, with a heavy heart, they returned. They didn't return victorious, you know. Yeah. But it wasn't on them. It was sure. on no one, you know. It well, that's just... how it was in Afghanistan. Like, I was in 10th Mountain. Yeah. And it's like 10th Mountain owned Afghanistan, yeah. right? Like, there was, I don't think of the 16 years of OEF, there yeah. was ever not at least one brigade of 10th Mountain in Afghanistan. Yeah. And we would always just cycle. Like, yeah. occasionally one would go to Iraq, but the other two were always in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so, yeah, same thing with 101st, like, 3rd ID. Yeah. In 1st Cav in Iraq. Like, yeah just constant rotations of the same units in and out and yeah it gets to wear on you because like you know it's that sends your father kind of thing yeah, like, yeah. So the things that you fuck up the the next rotation pays for yeah and it just becomes this cycle of and like a lot of their higher ups were they were like second lieutenants that first tour and now they were like first lieutenants or captains and then they were like my god you know like this it was supposed to be quick and yeah. now we're back uh so when the hundred first got there uh this is kind of a tragic story and I won't say any names. The ODA medic uh, became addicted to uh, morphine. He would slowly dose himself because he was hurt and he didn't want to leave sector. And by the end, he was just like a complete like drug addict, you know, yeah. a very nice guy, a good guy, but he couldn't like go out on mission anymore. And like the ODA guys needed a medic. They were doing, oh, yeah. you know, very risky stuff. Uh, basically what they were doing, this was kind of uh, serendipitous for them. Uh, there was a National Guard unit in Baghdad where one of the guys in the National Guard unit was uh, used to work for a telecom company and he was a software programmer for a telecom company. And he more or less figured out how to hack into the Iraqi cell phone grid and start looking at incoming calls and matching them up with cell phones that they had recovered so he could track people. Like that's very common now. But this in 2004, that this is deal. the guy who figured it out. Yeah. You know, so they were like, oh my God, like this guy has a very good skill and we can pick up HVTs very easily by doing this. So basically the ODA team was like, you're going to ride with us and we're going to have, uh, you know, this Scott platoon kind of be our, our cordon on stuff. And they also have a medic. And so I kind of hopped on with them and that stuff got a little weird. Uh, that's the only part I don't really know if I was doing the moral thing because I didn't know what we were doing. Right. Right. Real spooky. Yeah. Black SF has stuff. that yeah. like thing. Like we're SF. If we get shot, you will treat us, but you will know nothing. Yeah. You know, they were like, you wait out there. Because you weren't one of them. Yeah. I was not one of them. You know, so they were like, you also, you're brown and you, who knows, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, every once in a while, they would like have me do stuff that was to their advantage. They were like, here are some civilian clothes put them on, go walk past that courtyard, take a look inside. Shit. And I would. I was like, okay, there's people in and there. pray to God no yeah, one spoke to yeah, you in yeah, Arabic yeah. asked you a question. Yeah. <laughs> did they let you grow a beard? Oh, uh, yeah. I That's one of the perks. Yes, they, they did give me that. You know, they gave me that. And they have their own, like, they don't eat at the regular chow hall. They're, everything's special for them. Oh, yeah. So you just have, like, their, steak and yeah, lobster. So I did get to enjoy their food a little bit. They had all the alcohol they could drink, too. Yeah, they, they were doing weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're uh, never short for steaks and cigarettes. Yeah, so they have like, basically they had these, like their platoon leader had this credit card and it was like some sort of DOD credit card. Yeah, and he unlimited could get anything. budgets. Like yeah. he could get anything. He could be like, oh, 
I want a TV and recliners for everybody in my platoon. And they're like, TV and recliners would appear. $1,000 Garmin yeah. watches, man, yeah. like everything. So like, I did get to enjoy some of their stuff. Uh, other than that, I had no idea what the hell they were doing, what right. I was doing. I was just along for the ride. If you weren't getting hurt. Intel briefs. No, that was like excluded from that. They were like, you sit outside. I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> we old medic, you come in. Yes, yeah. Uh, but yeah, worked a little bit with uh, Australian Special Forces. Those guys were really, really good. Uh, they treated it in a completely different way. They were like there for like fun almost. They were like, this is not our war, but like this is a good training for us. We'll shoot people. Yeah. We're here now. You know. Because well, Australia, it's the one country that's always had our back. Yeah. World War One, yeah. Australia's there. World War Two, Australia's there. Even Vietnam, Australia was there. Yeah. Nobody else was there for us in Vietnam, just Australia. Yeah. So those guys like, I don't know if they feel just obligated. We're like, shit, America's in a war. I guess we're going. Yeah. American military is very like, standardized and this is the first time I saw people like think on their feet I thought the SF team was thinking on their feet too but like the Australians were like completely different they were like innovating on the spot so we would carry around basically like these hoods to put on people who were HVT so they wouldn't know where they're going right like a potato sack yeah yeah and they were like why do you guys carry this around I was like you know for the HVTs and they were like okay watch this and they took a guy's shirt who were arresting pulled it up over his head and tied it in a knot they were like we don't carry extra equipment the shirt works the same way and I was like, oh, ounces yeah. equal pounds, yeah, pounds yeah. equals pain. Yeah. So they were just like super innovative, and we we're like, oh, okay, you guys are really good. Yeah, they were legit, really man. good. Yeah, the Australians and the Brits. The thing I noticed about them is like, because we were young, dude, yeah, right. Like, so I was like twenty. Yeah, I may be wrong. Maybe they all just looked older. Yeah, but like the Australians and the British dudes I met, like, they were in they their thirties. Like they were all like in their thirties. Yeah, they yeah, were absolutely like, in their thirties. I didn't, I didn't meet any other like nineteen-year-olds. Yeah, no, no, there weren't. There, there weren't, you know. And, and I don't know if that's like they just don't deploy their nineteen-year-olds. They get them more training first, I, or if their military is just made up mostly of older guys. I think it's. I think the by the time you get to their top tier level, you've just been in the. You know, I know in the SAS, the typical SAS man uh, has been in for like eight years or something yeah. like that. So you're just like older. Yeah, they're grown adults before yeah. they get sent over. Like by the time you hit like squadron, you know, you're like a mature adult. And I remember working with the the, the Delta guys, the squadron guys. You know, this is the first time like I realized that there's ODA, which are the A teams, and but like the Delta guys don't consider them a team. They're squadrons. They're like, oh, yeah. we're not in a team. We're in a squadron. I'm like, what does that mean? Are you guys fighter pilots? They're <laughs> right. like, no, we do something else. We do our own goddamn yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. and nobody's uh, ever going to know about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but the SAS and like the Australians kind of work the same way. They're in squadrons, and I think you're much older, much more experienced by the time you SAS get dudes are crazy, man. I never worked. The Australians are also called SAS, and like being a medic is a weird experience because you're like there, but not in the action. They will do even when I was with like first ID, the National Guard. Everybody will do everything they can to keep you in the safest spot possible. Yeah. Right? If you're firing your weapon, shit has gone yeah, like, really it is, badly. It is, like, things are like nuts. Out of know? control. And I think in my in all the engagements we were in, I think I've fired my weapon like five times. You know, If there was a firefight, there was like someone sitting on top of me to make yeah. sure I was low and safe on the ground, as low as I could be, you know? So, which is that sort of like demasculating for you? Like you're like, hey guys, I, I know how to fight too. Yeah, I, I was, but then I was like, but I'm also not getting shot, and this is pretty good. I'm gonna yeah. just be cool with this, you know. So like, I was there for like watching all this stuff, but like from a safe distance, which was nice, you know. I would be like, you know, like a little farther away than from the people who were like really doing shit. Yeah, which was a measure of safety that I I learned to appreciate after a while. So you ended up being there for what, like 15, 16 months? I think 16 months. 16 and then you come months. home. Come home, demob, 
start school at Pitt. What was the demo process like for it you? It was super fast. It was super fast. Like I, like a couple of, of days? Like four days, I think. You know, I came back. They were like, don't get PTSD. Don't drink too much. Don't beat your wife. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, you know? go get your hearing checked. Get yeah, your yeah. vision checked. Yeah, yeah. Go yeah. get some shots. Yep. And then like, here's a Good bus. Good luck in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's a bus. And then like, I got home and uh, I was like, oh, time to go to school now. And like, I went to school and school was school. Everything was like kind of okay. Did you have the GI Bill? Uh, I had the GI Bill. Was that was, like the post 9-11 GI Bill? I don't think it was yet, but it covered everything. Yeah. Pitt was cheap enough then that I did not have to take out any loans. Whatever right. my costs were, were met. And and you had plenty of money from deployment. Yeah, I didn't buy like a F-350 when I got right. home like a lot of people did. So I was like, I have money left, you know. That's how you know units got back, man. Yeah. We see a bunch of E-2s and E-3s running yeah. around Camaros. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't do any of that. So I had plenty of money. So I weirdly like went into the army with a thick Indian accent and I came out without one, you know, being fully immersed for that long. So I was like, oh, I'm more prepared for college. You know, like I'd read a lot while I was deployed and like, you're, if you're sitting in an LPOP. That's all there is to do, man. What are you going to do? You're I sitting, try to tell people that all the yeah. time. Like soldiers are some of the most well-read dudes yeah. because like there's only so many movies you can watch, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. like, I don't know. Like I've seen more soldiers read Hemingway than I've yeah. seen like college students read Hemingway, right? Yeah. Like there's just... I mean, super well read. It, it's true, especially like the classics. So, because uh, they get passed around, like when we got finishes, around. you give it to your buddy and, and then he reads it. Like, it, I think there's some sort of program through the USO or something to get like the classics out or something. Because there were a lot of like Oscar Wilde and yeah. like, Dickens and stuff. I was like, didn't expect that, you know. But they were just always available, and if you like rip one up, there'd be another one of the same <laughs> book. My my partner went to Harvard, and a lot of these classics she hasn't read, and I have. Right. And she's like, "How is this possible? How, like, how do you know? You know?" Uh, she like brought up this story about like a picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, and she great like, book. This, "Yeah, great book." And she missed like described the plot wrong. I was like, "That's not what that story <laughs> is." And she was like, "How would you know?" And I told her what the plot is, and she was like, "Oh, I think you're right." And I was like, "What is this?" And she was like, "She saw like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she like gobbled it up, and she was like, "I went to Harvard, and I have a PhD." And like, you know, that. I was like, "We read a lot. I don't know yeah. what to say." And there's a ton of downtime. We were just sitting still, and you can read. I remember we had uh, we were passing Catcher in the Rye around. Yeah, and there was this dude trainer that was in our unit. Great dude, yeah. but like he was, he wasn't like conspiracy theorist. Like yeah. that's not the right word. Yeah. Like, he, but he was very like astute about like global problems yeah. and like he blamed a lot of shit on like British imperialism like he was very he's a very thoughtful guy yeah so I go and I take him catching the ride he's like I'm not reading that book man and I was like why he goes I'm not saying it'll necessarily turn me into a serial killer <laughs> but if I have the propensity to be a serial killer that yeah, may be the catalyst yeah, yeah. <laughs> because every serial killer has read that book it's true yeah Holden's a complicated character right he goes through some weird dude you know, and I felt like as I'm reading it I'm, I'm dude I never remember this moment I'll never forget this moment. Like I'm sitting in the hooch yeah. and I'm reading it and it's the scene where he's at like the the Museum of Natural History yeah. and it's talking about like the posed people yeah. and he's like, you know, sometimes I wish that I could do that with life yeah. and just make people stay there in this glass case. Yeah. And I, was, I got a really weird feeling. Yeah. I closed the fucking book and I was like, oh shit, this must be the serial killer chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one that sets yeah. you off the edge. Yeah. So I had to like give myself some distance from it. But yeah. it I mean, it's... And it's crazy because that's like, what, like a 14-year-old kid in this book. Well, it describes adolescent angst really, really well. I, I think that's what's uh, the genius of that book. Like pretty much everybody can relate to one part or the other, right? Oh, yeah. Smoking cigarettes, not want to go to school, like the 
comforting family member is comforting you, but you feel weird about it because you're a child and they're an adult and you're like, oh, you know, and then there's like, oh, I have to perform for my parents, but they're not, you know, I don't feel like they have my best interests in mind. I feel like the whole world is kind of against me and with me at the same time. Uh, yeah, my experience in life is not so close to Holden's uh, because growing up in India is totally different. Sure. You know. But I could imagine growing up here, it's very, very, everybody yeah. that's read it was like, this is my oh, life, yeah. you know. For sure, man. Yeah. that was. I mean, I guess that's one of the perks of being deployed is you get to read a lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you come home, you demob, you go to school. Were you still in the guard? I was still in the guard. How much longer were you in uh, Another, like, I think year or two. Was there a, a looming threat of redeployment? Yeah, there was. Uh, but, like, I thought it was safe. I was like, ah, you know. And I, there was always the belief that it would end, like, imminently, right? Like, this is going to be over in months yeah just never it still isn't yeah you know? oh yeah yeah Dude, get to afghanistan in 2006 yeah. and i was like god damn it's like i can't believe we're going to afghanistan yeah, yeah. like uh didn't that shit start in like october 2001 yeah and then we leave in 07 i'm like this surely can't go on much longer yeah then i'm back in 09 yeah and we leave at the beginning of 2010 and i'm like this time certainly it cannot be much longer yeah and then like here we are 2018 and it's yeah. like we're sending more troops to Afghanistan And, like, now. I remember, like, keeping in touch with, like, the guys I deployed with, and some of them got deployed over and over again, and them, like, writing me letters from, like, Sangin, being like, this, like, it is tough here. And I'm like, I thought this was supposed to die down. Like, are you guys, what's going on? They're like, no, we're getting, we're losing people left and right. So I was like, oh. I was in the 11th grade mm -hmm. when 9-11 happened, and uh, I was in uh, one of my electives, Greek and Roman history. Mm -hmm. One of my football coaches taught it, and I took every class his. I love him. He's my favorite teacher. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he was like, yeah, I got friends that are in the military. And they said, this will be nothing. It's yeah. like Desert Storm. We were in there. We were out. He's yeah. like, the technology we have now. Yeah. He's like, I don't know if it'll last a week. Yeah. And it's like, I've never had someone that I looked up to so much, like, give me such bad yeah, <laughs> yeah, reading yeah. of the environment. Well, like, everybody, right? Like, everybody was fooled. You know, everybody thought, well, we should have learned in Afghanistan from the Russians. They had no ROE and they still lost. Yeah. They right? had a million men. Yeah. They could do whatever. You yeah, know, and they still lost. There's and something. they were invited by the government. Yeah, you know the burial ground of nations. What's that saying about Afghanistan? Graveyard empires. Yeah, graveyard empires. Like the British army tried. Alexander it, they couldn't lost. do it. Alexander couldn't do the it. The British one dude. Yeah, one guy made it out of Afghanistan, yeah. and they sent him back just to send a message yeah. to the Brits, like, "Don't come fuck with yeah. us." Yeah. And what do we do? We go fuck with yeah, them. Yeah, and we get our asses kicked while we're there. And it was just like I remember getting like these stories back from guys who were there and there. I was like. Is it worse than Iraq? And they were like, IED-wise, no. Firefight-wise, yes. And I was like, whoa. I'm like, I thought that would be the part that's under control, you know? IEDs yeah. are kind of just there. They were like, no, we are getting in active engagements all the time. Right. Yeah, one of the um, the Fisters, the mm -hmm. Ford Observers, like, so our first tour was in Afghanistan. Our second tour, we were supposed to go to Iraq. Mm -hmm. And so he was trying, and he had already been to Iraq. Yeah. He was trying to explain to the guys. He was like, guys, this is going to be a different environment. Yeah. He was like, last time when I was in Iraq, I didn't fire my weapon all year. Yeah. He was like, it's not like Afghanistan where it's just a fucking firefight every 30 minutes. Yeah. But yeah, dude, I mean, it's, you couldn't drive 600 meters down the road without yeah. getting shot at, pop shots yeah. at, at a minimum. It's mountainous, but it's wide open. Yeah. Right. So, like, and you're in a valley probably traveling most of the time. You're so. through a valley and, and they have got the high ground. Yeah. So it's just so like, shooting down at you. Yeah. Fish in a barrel, yeah. man. And RPGs from an elevated position. Right? Yeah. And like people don't understand plunging fire, how effective that shit yeah, is. Yeah, like yeah, how yeah. hard it is to shoot bullets up. Like uh, yeah. gravity weighs on a man. It's yeah. hard to be accurate. Yeah, your bullet's going to be dropped. But yeah, like hearing those stories, I was like always kind of nervous. I was like, holy shit. And it's not like, 
I hadn't been to mountain warfare school. Like, uh, okay, assault on a fixed position and stuff like that. But I just didn't even do that as a medic. I was like, how much gear am I going to have to walk up a mountain with now? Yeah. You know? So, like, throughout college, that was, like, always kind of a fear of mine. I was like, this is going to this is gonna happen, you know? And, like, the reports I was hearing were no good, you know? Yeah. So I was like, oh, shit. Like, I need to be ready for this. But there's no way to be ready for it. And, like, right. I also wanted to enjoy college. And then it happened. I got called up in the IRR, you know? But it was back to Iraq. So I kind of felt better about that. I was like, all right, I've been to Iraq. Iraq had died down at this point. This is 2009. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, Iraq is okay. Hearing reports from Afghanistan, still a complete shit show. Had you finished school? No, I had not finished How school. far along were you? I had a year left. I had a year left. Were you pulled out like mid-semester or yeah. anything? Yeah, uh, which was uh, terrible of Pitt because they didn't give me Ws. They were like, oh, well, you know, this is like not our fault. So I was like, what's going to happen? Well, They're then like, whose fault is it? Yeah, it certainly yeah, isn't my yeah. fault, man. They were, they were like, well, uh, you got straight Fs. Uh, Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I eventually got it fixed when I, like, graduated. But for, like, for a while, like... Your GPA was just was trash. Like, you have a 2-2. Two, two. And I was like, what? Brutal. Yeah. So, like, when I before I graduated, like, I wrote a letter to the dean. Be like, this is what happened. And they were like, whatever. Sorry. You know, this was, like, a mix-up. You should have never gotten these Fs. But taken care of. Uh, At least they could have died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what was I? What was the second? Who were you with? Second tour, I was with a National Guard unit. It was a medic unit, and uh, got there. It was the it was a striker unit, like these weird up armored like crossover. Yeah, vehicles, crossover yeah. vehicles. I remember seeing them the first time I was in Iraq, and we had a striker company uh, from uh, what's the unit in Fort Lewis? Uh, second ID. Second ID. Yeah, the Indian, Indian head logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys came through with a bunch of strikers and. Uh, I think they came in, the company that came in came in with maybe like 17 strikers and two weeks later they left with like two. They were like IED magnets because they were like, oh, we don't yeah. know what these things are, but they're expensive. Let's blow them up. Yeah. They stayed away from us and they were like, get these strikers. Yeah. And then they were like, we're They're cool as shit to look at. Oh, yeah, awesome. they don't stop an IED. No, no, no. They're just not designed for that. Yeah, yeah. So they just got ripped apart and then they were like, we're leaving now. <laughs> this was a big mistake on our part. So I was like, oh, these strikers aren't good, but like, I was also hearing reports that the war was nothing, you know. So I get there. I was totally right. You know, they, they get incoming fire every once in a while. And for, like, the guys who was their first time in Iraq, they were like, incoming. And I was like, it's, these bases are huge. They have no idea what they're aiming at. Yeah. You know, were you, like, at Biop? Were uh, I was at Biop at first, then uh, Taji, which is another massive, yeah. like, 10,000 soldier base with, like, swimming pools and, you know, Starbucks and whatever. Yeah. Uh, totally different that first tour. Completely different. Uh, we were on a fob the first tour. I was sleeping in like tents and shit, you know. Yeah. And it was it was kind of like nice in a way because like there was really no brass and you could do whatever the fuck you wanted. But like this time there was like colonels and generals on your base and you had to shave every day you and to wear PT belts yeah, and yeah. salute and exactly all that fucking yeah. bullshit. Yeah. But it was also all the creature comforts. I had internet in my room and a TV and you know I worked in a clinic. Were so, you like sick call? Yeah, I did sick call. I worked at a TMC. Uh, so, so were you the dude that's just like, drink water, here's some Motrin, yeah, get the yeah, fuck yeah, out of exactly, here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm was not like, going to actually treat you for anything. Yes. I have got syphilis, Motrin. Yes, like, it'll <laughs> it'll fix it. There was a lot of syphilis. There was a weird amount of syphilis. Lose weight. That's yes. your. That's why your back hurts. You're fucking fat. Yeah, th there was a lot of people who, like, went in thin to that deployment and left fat because, like, the chow halls were so good. And they were just like, this. it's available all the time. It's like, how do you get fat? Yeah. In a country that averages 120 degrees yeah, Fahrenheit. Yeah, people were, man. People were like, we were worried about, like, by the end, we were like, cholesterol is the biggest killer here this time, you know? Like, people were just housing ice cream it's with chicken It's not Al-Qaeda. Yeah, it's not Al-Qaeda. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was just like, it was not a combat zone, more or less. I did go out a few times with this infantry company that would just do like route clearance. I went out with a uh, striker. They got hit by an IED. They blamed it on me. They were like, you're bad luck. <laughs> you know, uh, we got hit by this IED. The only contact that company took the entire like cycle. And uh, don't bring the brown dude with yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, uh, like, they were like happy. They were like, we're happy you're here. Like, uh, I met a vac there, dudes. They had like, so if this was in 2004 and they had the injuries they had, I'd be like, you're staying. I'm not medevacing you. Right. You know, this is just a part of the game. But like, I was like, ah, you know, things are slow. These guys have head injuries, like TBI type stuff. There's, they saw flashes, they have headaches. I was like, I just medevac them all. Did you give them one of those morphine suckers? No, <laughs> no. I, they were just like, they were like, oh, our head hurts and stuff. I was like, you're not missing any limbs or anything. They're like, but our head hurts. I was like, all right, fine. It's a different scenario. Yeah. So you yeah, can there's leave. plenty of bodies. Yeah, there's plenty of bodies. So why risk it? You know. So and some of those guys were diagnosed with TBIs afterwards. You yeah. know. So I'm glad I did. I'm glad I had the opportunity to. And the first time we were like, we're down on manpower. Unless you're dying, you're yeah. staying here. You know. But yeah, I medevaced him and I went back to the TMC and I was like, that's it. I'm never leaving the base again. Right. And I went back to my comfortable life of swimming and Starbucks and, you know. But you never had work triage or anything like that? Just sick call mostly? Mostly sick call. We would treat a lot of Iraqi patients. This is like hearts and minds, like a lot of like just preventative medicine, you know, go out uh, with the doctors and like give out medications, give out a lot of antibiotics. That's the first time I also realized that after we left that everything would go to shit. When we got, went out on these, like, basically humanitarian mission, no one was shooting at us, but you could tell, like, people were pissed, but not at us anymore. They'd realized, like, don't fight the Americans, just wait for them to get out of here. Yeah. And we would give them large amounts of money, like straight cash, like, here's $300,000 to a group called the SOI, Sons of Iraq, called ISIS. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember talking to these guys, and, like, they had kind of, like, learned like a little bit of English just because we'd been there so long. I'd learned enough Arabic to like speak back. And they were basically telling us like, we want you to leave soon, but like what of your equipment are you not taking with you? And we're like, these are very pointed questions, yeah. you know? And we left a shitload of Humvees and M16s over there. Like billions of dollars in equipment. Yeah. When I left, we had like eight MRAPs and like all this other stuff and like the strikers. We didn't bring any of it back. You know, there was like, this is theirs now. Like cruiser weapons you know i was like we're giving them cruiser weapons They're like this doesn't seem good but i'm like also who am i to like make these right. decisions you know i'm like they seem pretty pissed off like they're gonna kill each other as soon as we leave so i was like all right whatever and then i left you think we would learn at some point that anytime we leave other people any other nation i don't care yeah. what color what religion we yeah. leave them high-powered weapons doesn't, odds are those weapons can be used against us at some yeah, point in the future exactly and then i was in a way, like, I wanted to believe everything was fine because for us, it was fine. We were, like, walking around in sector, like, not scared at all. Yeah. Because no one was messing with us. You know, we would go into Baghdad, drive around, and it was fine. I remember... Like, there were shit tons of civilians there. We would go into, like, bazaars and have chai. And, like, yeah. I was like, you could never even fathom doing this in 2004. Like, we would go into, like, Sadr City and, like, buy shirts. Yeah. I was like, I remember going to Sadr City in 2004 and 2005. You would fucking get killed yeah. if you did But that. now there's, like, American aid workers. Yeah, yeah. With no protection. Yeah, no, no protection. bodyguards just walking around we with were, hijab on. We were basically tourists going yeah. into the bazaars. and like, oh, let's buy these trinkets and DVDs and take them back to base. And no one would mess with us because they were just waiting. They knew. They're like, leave them alone. They will leave. Yeah. And then we will take over. And that's what happened. And here we are. Yeah. What a cluster. Never ending war. Yeah. 
So how long was that? Was it 12 months? No, that was short. That was like nine months. That was nine months. Uh, very easy. Almost didn't want to leave. Amenities were so I'm nice. I'm like, huh? I hate to say that, but like, it was very, very comfortable. Yeah, right? you go like, to the pool every day, man. I, I did. I, Not I, the stresses of college. No, 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 no. <laughs> like my, my routine was I would wake up, I would go swimming. Like I'm not a good swimmer, but I would splash around in yeah. the pool. You know, it's it's super hot. Then I would go to Starbucks. I would get a coffee. Then I'd go to Cinnabon, get one of those Cinna sticks, and then go start. You know, sick call. Sick call would end. I would watch like Oprah or something, and then like do PM sick call, and then have like a nice dinner with a bunch of people, and go home and watch a movie. That's like the dream life. You know, yeah. Super relaxed. No one was getting hurt. You know, I thought it was great. I was like, we won. We did it. Yeah. And I was wrong. Were you? Yeah, yeah. So you come back, back to school. Back to school. Did that suck? A little bit. I had really become comfortable into like not doing much with my life and you know still making money. Uh, so I came back to school. I I did sign uh, a reenlistment when I was in Iraq. I was like, I'm on an IR anyway. I'll re up for another two years. So I was back in the guard. So I did guard stuff on the weekends and like that was easy. You know, a lot of turnover. There were all new faces, uh, not from the first time I was there, all new people, and uh, went back to school. No more deployments, though. No more deployments. I knew I had, like, signed up for just enough time that I would not be deployed again. Yeah. I never had that Because you had that dwell time. Yeah, I was like, I'm good. This, this is it. So went back to school, finished school, got a degree in history. Not very marketable. I don't recommend right. history <laughs> degrees if you want to get a job. Uh, got out of school and uh, joined the police department. Why? So, basically, the one thing I did learn from my experience in the army is that I liked helping people, and it was in a vein, like the police kind of do what the army does, but in your own community, and I saw it as a kind of a community building organization that's paramilitary, right? Which is what it's supposed to be, a community safety and building organization that's paramilitary. Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds, right? But in your own country, helping your neighbors. I remember thinking one of the biggest barriers to success in Iraq is not knowing the culture and not knowing the language. I was like, we can do it here, you know, like this is a thing I want to do. So I joined the police department and uh, went to, you know, the police academy with a bunch of guys who were also veterans. Some of them like at a much higher level than me. Like uh, one of the guys was like, uh, what's that uh, TV show on HBO, Generation Kill? Yeah. He was in that show. Like, there's a character that oh, plays shit. him, you know, in that show. So people with like a really high skill set, at least in my academy class, like a bunch of guys who were in the Rangers and stuff like that. I was like, oh, they're getting like the best of the military. I was like, I basically don't know anything compared to these guys. You know, I'm, I was just a medic. Well, that's a high skill set. Yeah, yeah. But in a, yeah, yeah. So... And I joined it and then like we went through the academy and then we graduated the academy and then I noticed I was like, oh, this is something new that's happening. This post 9-11 veterans entering the police force. The police force in general was not filled with veterans. Matter of fact, the guys who were like very, very specialized in the military said like the police force is antagonistic to like the, you know, veteran organization. So this guy, he's still in uh, force recon. He's about to leave the police department and go into CAG. And one of the best, you know, like tactical dudes I've ever met. He's a scout, like recon sniper for the Marine Force Recon, which is like the highest level sniper you can be in the Marine yeah. Corps. Uh, has won like global level competitions, has been deployed like 14 times, you know. What does uh, he do for the PD? Is he like SWAT or? They wouldn't let him on the SWAT team. They pulled him aside, said, don't even apply. Just too good? 
<laughs> they were just like, you're gonna want to do stuff that like we don't do, and you know, he was just like, we don't want you. And then I talked to a bunch of other guys who were like in Ranger Bad or SF who were cops. I was like, why don't you guys join the SWAT team? And they were like, they told us no already, man. They were like, don't even try it. That's crazy. And I was like, you would well, think in yeah. a high, like a, a super heightened dangerous situation yeah. that you would need a sniper. Yeah. You would hope it's a guy that has actually shot people in real life yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, um, making those decisions has a silver star for valor for I, I think he ran into some sort of compound and like killed a bunch of people and saved a baby or something I don't know that's something incredible <laughs> so you know? silver typical silver yeah. star yeah, yeah yeah but like you think that's the type of guy you would want in the SWAT team yeah no no uh, and I asked, those dudes have discretion yeah well I, asked, I was like why you know he was like well I don't buy into the way the SWAT team treats other Americans on American soil so if I was a part of that SWAT team, I would de-escalate that shit. And they don't yeah. want that. He was like, we fucking go to the houses, we break their windows, we make everybody lay down on the ground, put them at gunpoint, children. He was like, this is America. This is not what I fought to do. I was like, I will not do that. Part it's of that like team. it's like dude trying to pick up HVT. Yeah, in it's exactly the same. Yeah, and so he was but like, it's just some kid. Yeah, that's got dope in his house. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And but it's an American. Yeah, and like I think in his own way made that like known to the SWAT team before he tried out. He's like, listen, if you get me. It's a different set of rules. I'm not playing by yours. And then they were like, no, you're out. So. Well, I can see why they would want to maintain. Yeah. They're I mean, they're wrong. wrong they're but, totally wrong, you know. But, but you don't want a new guy coming in there making you, yeah. you know, accountable. Yeah, yeah, shit, yeah, exactly. All of a sudden. Yeah. So he joined the plainclothes unit like very, very early into his career. And they thought he was like a gift from God. They were like, this guy is catching criminals that we thought were uncatchable. But he was using basically special forces doctrine in how to like build assets. So generally, cops would just go around kicking doors in. He would like kick very few doors in, never use any force. And they were like, this guy is like a trained killing machine. He's going to use force on everybody. I don't think he's used force yet. It's been seven years he's been in the department. Yeah. I don't think he's used force. But he built like these really good community connections and they started telling him stuff. So he would write these search warrants and get like high level drug dealers off the street. He's still doing it. Uh, but I think he's leaving soon, unfortunately. All the good ones are, man. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's that time to start talking about get a little deeper into police stuff. Yeah, man. yeah. And we are recording this from Pittsburgh. What's today's date? June 27th, 2018. Yeah. We are about a week removed from Antoine Rose's shooting. Yeah. Unarmed black team by a cop. Yeah. Um, so you and I went through a mindfulness training program like yes. what was that four or five months ago so with this mindfulness thing yeah. and you mentioned to us at the time that you were leaving the police force yeah and your reason was you uh i'm paraphrasing so please feel free to yeah. correct me that you didn't want to be a part of this machine this institutional like that it was toxic and you were just you were just over it yeah you didn't want to be a part of it anymore so a lot of things uh culminated in that decision right it was uh, so I, I took the sergeant's test in the police department. I scored number one. I scored the highest score ever in the history of the test. And they wouldn't promote me, like, for whatever reason. And then, like, I looked at, like, the organization in a different lens after that. And I saw it as kind of a negative in a lot of ways, even though it's filled with a lot of great people. Like, just like in the military, I will say some of the best people I ever met, or best people I know are cops, you know. But as an organization, and it's a lot to do with the external politics of it. It's a lot to do with the public. It just wasn't a good thing, you know, for me at that point. It was really, really detrimental. Uh, 
I had a hard time of like turning a blind eye to how exactly we deal with the community. Uh, so when the previous police chief was here in Pittsburgh, Cameron McClay, who uh, was great, who was great, and he, I think he's like number one for Seattle's job yeah. right now for Seattle police's. Uh, when he moved here uh, and he became our police chief, he took me out of patrol and I, I worked directly for him for two years. He was like, you're done with patrol, you work only for me now. And at that time I was like, okay, this organization's messed up in a lot of ways, but we're working to fix it. And after he left, that wasn't the case anymore. So I was like, all right, so I'll try to take a leadership role. And so I took the sergeant's test and that didn't work out. So I was just like, what am I doing now? You know. So why, why was his tenure so short? Uh, so for a lot of reasons, but he was fighting too hard for the things he believed in, for things that the city isn't ready for yet. So it was pushback from it was political pushback. government. Yeah, it, was right. government it wasn't pushback. like the, the police no, union it, it was fraternal it was orders. No, no, it was definitely the police union too, and government. So both ends were like, this is not because he was real big on community policing, right? He was a huge reformer, right? So he came from Madison, and this is a guy with a very, very, very diverse background right he was the head of their SWAT team uh, was a champion uh, kickboxer for many years and was a commander in Madison also has numerous master's level degrees writes books and he came here like a true warrior poet you know and he came here and he was like this is not the way we're supposed to like police he was like I want my police department to be very very prepared so some of the things he did wouldn't like make sense he was like I want my cops shooting more at the range expending more ammunition, training harder, learning more combatives, but I do not want that happening on the street. I want them to be ready at such a high level so they will know when they need to do it on the street, but it's not as often as they think, right? They won't have that, I was afraid, so I shot somebody instinct as much. Right, so, so we've talked about this on the podcast before, yeah. but never with a cop, so yeah. I wanna get your thoughts on this. Like The reason I feel that post 9-11 vets in particular mm -hmm. are not involved in these shootings of unarmed people is because before you deployed, I mean, you were a medic, right? Mm -hmm. How many hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition did you put down range? You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. just, yeah. you knew the weapons inside and out. Yeah. So there was a level of confidence mm -hmm. with it of, I know my M4, yeah. and I know how long it takes me to raise it and pull the trigger, yeah. and that's no time at all. Yeah. I can let this thing play itself out for a long time yeah. until I have to shoot, right? Yeah. But cops that only shoot 100 rounds a year at the range, yeah. like they don't have that confidence. Exactly. Uh, it's not a knock on them specifically. It's just, it's a knock on the department. It's the training, right? The department should have these guys shooting weekly because, I mean, it's a perishable skill, right? Yeah. You shoot once a year, you don't know how to shoot. Uh, like, it says, like, you know, they say, like, when something critical happens, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back to the lowest level of training. Yeah. And that's absolutely true. And post 9-11 veterans usually do, you know, have better training, you know, through the military. And it's not just veterans. You, there's some other cops who are like street level cops who are just really, you know, seasoned, you know. There's a value in having, you know, a cop with experience. I, uh, so I recently resigned from the police department. Uh, there's a guy in my department who is kind of young but has a lot of experience in policing. And I'll tell you, this guy is regularly chasing down criminals who are armed and using limited to no force to take them into custody. He hasn't shot anybody yet, but he has arrested more high-level drug dealers in that zone than anybody else. Does he spend a lot of his own time and own money at the range? So outside of police work, he's a boxer. He shoots all the time. And he does that, and he tells me he does that. He was like, so I know 
when I absolutely have to use it, I'm able to use it. But I don't just use it because I'm scared, because right. I'm not scared. Right. You know, he he's like has a higher level of training that the veterans come in with. You know. Yeah. Uh, there's interestingly a case law behind this now, as happened in Weirton. Uh, a Marine veteran refused to shoot somebody. Uh, basically, he came to a scene where a guy had a gun. Uh, the guy had it low down on by his side and was talking about like you know how upset he was. And he was like, this guy's suicidal and I'm not going to shoot him. And he kind of talked to this guy for 14 minutes. In, in 14 minutes, this guy wasn't gonna, hadn't shot him. So whatever he was doing was right. And then another police officer who wasn't a veteran appeared on scene, got out of the car and shot the guy in the face. The gun wasn't even loaded. Yeah. You know, this veteran knew that. He was like, I've been in this situation before. This man is not going to kill me. And how did the police department react? They fired him. Jesus. They fired that veteran cop. That's insane, yeah. man. So let's talk about Camden. Yeah. So you were telling me before the episode. Can we get into the details? Yeah. So Camden, Camden for any... Well, okay. Everybody knows about Camden, right? Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it used to be super high crime. A lot of problems. It made Philadelphia look yeah. tame. Yeah, yeah. Per capita shootings through the roof, right? Then, like, basically, it's like they look at the situation. This situation has nothing to lose. It's so bad, there's nothing to lose. So Chris Christie basically says, do what you got to do. You can't make it worse. And gets this 20-year guy who's kind of come up through the ranks, very successful, hard-nosed police officer. This is the police officer who's chasing people down, punching people in the face, making high-level arrests. But Was he from Camden? From Camden. All his experience. But, like, you know, a, a thinker. And says, like, okay, you're in charge now. What will you do? And thinking, like, this guy's going to be tough on crime. And he has this, you know, his narcotics and SWAT background, did a ton of undercover work. He says, this whole model is wrong. We need to be community policing. And they're like, what? Like, Scott Thompson, you are, you're a championship boxer. You punch people in the face. He was like, that was wrong. I just did that because that's what the department had us doing. So he's like, I'm going to completely flip the script on this. Fires 70% of the police department. Individually hires back the cops he wants to hire. And then hires a ton of veterans. So within two years, double digits drops in crimes. The stories of police misconduct disappear. So it disappears to a level that like researchers don't believe it. So they send like researchers out to like do interviews in the community to be like, oh, the cops are fudging the numbers. And the community is just like, no, 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 we love our cops. What are you talking about? Like, don't talk shit on them. Get the hell yeah. out of here. So complete 180. And he does this by doing things that don't always make sense from an outside perspective. Community policing increases his use of force training budget by like 10 times. He's like, I want my cops to be ready when that time comes. He's like, I will give all kinds of incentives for veterans to come on board. So a large percent of his departments fill with veterans. So he's kind of created this like new but experienced police department that has the mission of making America better about being constitutional, which is kind of like drilled down to you as a soldier, right? You're fighting for the homeland. So when you come back to the homeland, you want to live those ideals of freedom and democracy. You know, so they do that. And it's... And yeah, as a soldier, like you don't swear oath to the president, man. No, you swear yeah. an oath to the Constitution, yeah, right? Yeah, So And that's how it should be for cops, too. They do a great format of constitutional policing, which is what Scott Thompson would say. And he's like, I've chosen a bunch of guys who follow the Constitution. So, and, that's and it just so happens that they're coincidentally, these guys have a shit ton of trigger time. Yeah. So they're confident. Yep. Uh, they're, they're not scared. They've gone into one or two shootings, and the community has not, there's been no protest. Right. They're like, our cops did what they had to do. 
Because they're obviously justifiable. 100% justifiable. There's no question. So in policing, there are times where you have to use force. Uh, if you treat the community right and you do it at the appropriate time, they won't freak out on you. If you do it in an inappropriate time, like what happened here, they'll freak out on you. I mean, And rightfully so. Rightfully so. I mean, like from a police officer, but not a, I don't know, like seven years is a good amount of experience, but it's not 20 years. Everything about that thing that happened here with the Antoine Rose shooting was wrong. The traffic stop was wrong. He didn't do a felony traffic stop, right? A felony traffic stop is you pull the car over, you get on your loudspeaker, you order out every person in the car individually and have them come to you. Like step out of the car, throw the, win uh, throw the keys to your left, face away from me, walk backwards towards the sound of my voice while raising your hands above your head. You do it that way. You wait for backup units before you do any of that. You just sit there. That car had pulled over. It wasn't getting into a pursuit. It wasn't taken off. You wait for backup units. You individually take everybody into custody, right? This cop didn't do any of that. Him and his partner went up to the window, didn't secure the people in the back. So there are situations where you can't get back up. You can't do a felony stop. You have to walk up on the car. There's been times where I've walked up on a car and I didn't know something was wrong until I was right there. And I'm like, oh, there's a gun on the floorboard. I immediately say, everybody put your hands on the ceiling of the car. Didn't give those orders, didn't secure the people. I will tell my partner, go to the other side. So in case someone bails, you can chase them doesn't do anything. He puts himself in what we call officer-created jeopardy. He created a huge risk for himself. So when something happened, he didn't have time to react. He didn't have time to think. He didn't use the tenets of time, distance, and cover that are taught in the military, right? Yeah. And then ended up shooting an innocent kid who was unarmed. So I don't want to throw cops under the bus yeah. by any means, man, because I know good cops. You're a good cop. Yeah. There's lots of good cops. Most of them. Most cops are good. Yeah. Do most cops, regardless of what um, department they serve with, like, mm -hmm. would they explain the situation exactly how you just did? Say, look, he broke this rule, he broke this rule, he broke this rule. Or is it one of those situations where we protect our own? So, yeah. So, like, that, in private, would they have this conversation, but not necessarily in public? That's the thing. So, it has become such an antagonistic relationship between cops and the civilian population, right? And a part of that, the civilians are to blame, and I'll, I'll get back around to that. But I think in public, they would back the blue, is what we call it. They would support the cop kind of no matter what. The blue lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the thin blue line. Yeah. That's what, literally, we are on one side of the thin blue line, and the cops are on the other. Uh, I used to be on the other side of the thin blue line. Uh, now I'm straddled the middle, uh, you know. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's because there's an antagonistic relationship between police officers and uh, the community. And it's not their fault. It's the war on drugs. It's everything that we're made to do, you know. Uh, one of my na last 911 calls uh, as a police officer, which is something I got to react in it the way I want to react. It was, it was a noise complaint. It was on Butler Street. I get there, uh, it's a building, and the owner of the building lives on the third floor. The second floor is an apartment, and the ground floor is this big apartment that he Airbnbs. So I get there and I'm like, hey, what's the problem? He's like, there's a bunch of kids who I Airbnb to and they're like doing drugs and like breaking my stuff in the Airbnb. I'm like, well, that's terrible. I'm like, I'll go deal with that. I walk inside and it's a group of seven kids, the nerdiest kids I've ever seen in my life. Some of them are literally playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm like, what's going on here? They're like, hey, we're in for a robotics conference at CMU, we're from MIT. And I'm like, yeah, you guys seem like you're from MIT, you know? 
So uh, I'm like, so what's going on with seven uh, virgins all in a room? Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, six black kids and uh, one white kid, which is a weird demographic too, right? And it, it's something to do with getting minorities involved in robotics. Yeah. And uh, the basically the white kids like, hey, listen, I'm the one who kind of like booked this Airbnb, and then like I came in with like the people I'm in this project with, you know, this robotics project. And like the guy was like pretty racist and like wanted us to leave. He was like he didn't realize he'd rented the place to a bunch of black people and used not so friendly language. Yeah. And then like one of the like kids came over. He was like, "Listen, man, like I'm from Philly, but like I understand. Like we'll leave. We'll leave. We're really sorry." Like I'm like, "Okay." Normally, I would have to make you leave because there's a complainant, but you know what? I'm quitting in like two days, <laughs> so hang tight. So I tell them. Well, to, the, like, and there were no signs of broken shit. They were literally playing Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. Some of them had like costume things on. Cleaning them. up after themselves. Yeah, yeah. Make yeah. sure there's no water yeah. spots on the table. Yeah, it was it was like a perfectly clean place. I mean, they they could have been arrested for being super nerds. You yeah, know, that was a crime. <laughs> uh, so they had soft music playing in the background, uh, techno type science music. I don't know. Yeah, music I've never heard before. But computer soft. music. Yeah, computer music. <laughs> so I go outside and I'm like talking to this guy. I, first of all, I tell the guys, I was like, listen, like after I leave, you lock the door. I was like, your conference is tomorrow. Don't open it till then. You have my permission. He cannot kick you out. So I go outside and I'm talking to this guy. He's like, you better get those people out, blah, blah, blah. Like you have to do your job. And I'm telling you that this is my property and you have to evict these people. I don't want these monkeys in my apartment. So shit. Yeah. So I'm normally like, I do like it is his property. It's a civil dispute. I'm not sure, but I'm like, I'm quitting in two days. So I'm like, listen, man, you're a huge racist and a total dick. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not kicking them out. If you call 911 again, it's just going to be me. I'm going to make sure I come back and I'm not going to do anything. You're just going to waste your time. Now go back upstairs before I beat the shit out of you. <laughs> what was your partner doing that like is not quitting in two oh, days? Oh, he was just laughing hysterically <laughs> on the side. He was like, oh, whatever. Like you threatened me. I'm like, I did. I did. Now go upstairs. And like he goes upstairs and like, I call my sergeant and I like I tell him what happened. He's like, I got this. And like, he calls my sergeant to complain. He's like, calls the zone. My sergeant's like, you better be careful, man. That cop's gonna come back and beat the shit out of you. He does He's not leaving like in two days, bro. He's like, he hates racists and you're in trouble. So the guy's like, ah, oh, you know. So, but like normally if I wasn't quitting in two days, those are laws I've had to enforce, you know, many times in my career that are, they're 911 calls that are blatantly racist. So from a police officer's perspective, we see this like some of the things that we do are just prescribed to us by the nature of the 911 call, but then we're blamed by the public. But it's the public putting us in that situation. That has right. created this weird dichotomy of like, we're here on you're here and we hate you. That's totally dysfunctional, but police officers participate in it. Which it should be blame the landlord, but it's yeah. not like you're gonna hold a fucking press conference yeah, and be no, like, yeah. look guys, we didn't want to kick you out, but yeah. the landlord, yeah. That's what the law says. And what would the story be later from these kids if I'd kicked them out? Some cop came and kicked us out. Yeah. You know? But many, many times in my career, like hundreds of times in my career, it's been something that I've had to enforce that I don't morally agree with because it's the public, their racist views getting put forward. Another thing I want to touch on very briefly, though, let's talk about uh, Anthony Bourdain when yep. he was here. Yep. I, he passed away, unfortunately, recently. Yep, yeah. Uh, and you... <laughs> I've never laughed at a suicide comment before, yeah, on, yeah. but I did on yours because yeah. you were like, Anthony, you took me to eat, you made me smoke a cigarette. Yeah. And I, I want to unpack that. Well, how did that go down? He forced you to smoke a cigarette. So <laughs> basically, uh, uh, I was assigned downtown. Bourdain stayed at the Fairmont, and 
This guy, like, I know he's a huge television star, but I think he doesn't love the limelight. He wanted to, like, get away from this fancy hotel that his producer clearly had booked for him. Right. Because you so, guys went some, I don't not shady establishments, yeah, but, like, but, like off pretty the, in Hazelwood, like yeah, Alex's yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. That shit's... Pretty, like, off-the-wall places. So, like... From like I I I don't want to betray his trust because he's gone because like it was certain like mannerisms I'm sure if he wanted revealed he would reveal to the public at large, but from what I got from this guy this was just a guy who was like someone who really wanted to just be a part of communities, but like fame had also gotten in the way of that. But fame had also allowed him to be a part of communities. Yeah, it's catch twenty two. Yeah, like I the one of the most poignant things I asked him I was like so what makes you you know such a famous chef. He was like, I'm really not that good of a cook, but I'm really good with people. That's what he told me. And he'll eat anything. And he will eat anything. Anything you put in front of him, he'll eat it. Uh, he also said his taste buds are really like muddled because he smokes so much. You know, he was like, I'm just a heavy smoker. I can't taste half the stuff I'm eating. I kind of have to eat crazy stuff now to taste it. So he was a really nice guy. I'm sad. Uh, and you were not a smoker. No. So how was that? You because uh, you can't turn them down, right? No, no, no. It's like, like being in Afghanistan. They offer you something. Yeah, you, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, uh, I, I told him I wasn't a smoker. He was just like, I uh, live a little. Live a little. <laughs> outside, you know? So, yeah. You felt like shit. Yeah, I felt <laughs> Didn't sick. Didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I, I felt sick. He was like, he was like, so now you know. Now you know what it's like to cig- smoke a cigarette, you know? He's like, one day you'll tell your friends you smoked a cigarette with Anthony Bourdain. And I was like, yeah. He was like, they won't know who you are. Because I... I also didn't know how famous he was, so I kind of messed with him about not being that famous because he was kind of like cautious about like being super public. But then I realized he was super famous. Oh yeah, because yeah. like you're walking down the street and everyone wants yeah, to stop yeah, and yeah. say hello then to I him. I was like, you are very famous, eh? He was like a little bit. Because like bit. when you did that, like he had just come back from like Vietnam with Obama. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he uh, was pretty famous. <laughs> yeah, and he he also didn't seem like someone who enjoyed it. He did not enjoy fame. Uh, he really like liked to get involved into stuff, and I think people treated him differently because of it. Like he's the guy who like walked into the kitchen was like, "How are you guys doing?" I remember being a line chef, you know. Yeah, he's like a genuine dude. Yeah, like he wanted to just like experience his life. I I don't think this man was doing what he was doing to be famous or rich. He was doing what he was doing because he liked the experience. Of yeah. It. So was that one of your cooler assignments? It wasn't an assignment. It was kind of like done by Bourdain. He's the one who kind of selected that this happened. You know, it wasn't the department at large. The most point. So how did, I mean, why you though? He saw me. He was just like, give me that guy? Yeah. He saw me. He was like, <laughs> him. You know? And uh, basically, he was just like. Because you were the only dude that wasn't 50 and fat. No, he was. No, he was like, no, no. Like, he actually was kind of said a stereotypical thing. He was like, I've never seen an Indian cop before, you know? <laughs> Uh, this will be interesting. Yeah, yeah this will be interesting. <laughs> and he was like, we can talk about policing and Indian food. He was like, come with me now. So, yeah, it was nice. Uh, but the most poignant uh, experience that I've had as a police officer, it was near the end of my career, and explained a lot of things to me that I didn't understand. So I want to start out by saying, after seven years of being a cop, there were racist tendencies that I was developing. I, I remember I talked to you about it in uh, you know, mindfulness thinking. Yeah. I was completely going over to the other side. Because if you do something often enough, it becomes habit, and then you start to believe in it. You know, uh, being in these disenfranchised and marginalized communities, I did see a lot of crime coming from a specific population. I know the causal reasons behind that. You know, I've been to school, I read a lot, but still, when you're in it, it's hard to like 
create that dichotomy. This is why this is happening, and this is what to you're not really thinking in. about the academics yeah. behind it. Yeah. yeah. So, last summer, uh, David Cameron, uh, the MP from England, mm -hmm. came to Pittsburgh, and before he came, his like initial party came, uh, which is a bunch of cops from London Metro. So London Metro is more like the FBI. They police all of England, uh, all the UK, in an investigational standpoint, and they do the PSD, right? So MI6 does not do the PSD. MI6 just does like a brief overlay, like everything's safe now, these guys come in to do the PSD. So they came in- Are they the few ones that carry guns? Yeah, they carry guns, yeah. Uh, most cops in Britain do not carry do not, guns. But London Metro does. Uh, these guys came in and like, basically they come to our police zones, they're chit-chatting and like this guy was like kind of like, talking to me and I'm like, oh, this, this, and this. And I knew a little bit about, about Brexit and stuff like that. So I started talking about Brexit and he's like, do you mind showing us around? And my sergeant's like, yeah, Chatterjee is like the good candidate for this. He's gonna, you know, like he knows the neighborhood and he like, he's about to get promoted anyway. This is when I first had finished the sergeant's test. He was like, he's gonna be leaving us. So whatever, go nuts. So I drive around downtown and then we drive to the projects, you know, in the Hill District and I'm driving around and I'm showing him everything. and. He'd just been given this assignment. This is like his third trip to America, but like this is the first time he'd come professionally. He brought his kids to Disney World once, and then he like went to Vegas for some national yeah. party. It was his American experience. So we're, we're like driving through the projects, and he's a very very smart guy. Uh, he actually went to Oxford, like which is uncommon, I guess, for someone who's a cop. Yeah, but he's a high level cop. He's the main security guy for David Cameron. He, uh, he was. Very good career. He was an officer in the SAS, Oxford SAS, London Metro. He's like a major in the London Metro, very large big organization. Big deal. Yeah, big deal. Uh, and we're driving around the projects. And he's like, like everybody in these poor communities that you take me to are black. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, like oh, that's that's strange for me to see that. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, he started out in London Metro as an investigator, yeah, right, doing like mid-level drug investigations than homicide investigations. He's like, in England, most of the really poor and highly criminalized populations are Indian or Bangladeshi or Pakistani people, people who look like you. I'm like, yeah. And then he like sits back for a while and then he's like, I think this is what happens when you marginalize a group of people for long enough. He's like, we've done to the Indian people in England, like we were under the Raj and you know the servant class in England for yeah. a long time, what, you know, America has done to black people and he's and like he kind of like tears up he's like this explains it you know he's like this is exactly there's like nothing wrong with a person's biological makeup it's what you do to them as a community and like we like both pull over and we like talk about it for a while and then he's like you have to get out of the car and give me a hug now <laughs> like I, for him it's cathartic because I'm Indian yeah. right like it's like for him I'm the black person in the car like right. the way we treat it and I'm like I think about it in that way too I'm like listen like there's no separation from me and this person in the projects. I'm policing them, but they're here because of historical injustices, right? Yeah. And Systemic like, oppression. Yes, and he really communicated that in his own way. When he just realized it, he helped me realize it too. And in my seven years as a cop, that's the most profound experience I've had. That's so interesting, man. Because like one of my, I don't want to say idol, but one of the people one of the people in history that I like really look up to is Winston mm -hmm. Churchill, right? Yeah. Great man. But holy fuck Very was he racist, racist against yeah, Indians, yeah. man. And Very it wasn't racist. like, it wasn't just a general racism. It was specific, man. Like the most vitriolic, vicious shit oh, he said God, about yeah. He said worse shit about Indians than he did about Hitler. 
Oh no no he caused a famine in India when we were starting to kind of rise up he was yeah like, cut a off blockade yeah. yeah he's like oh we need that for the boys at the front yeah. like and like all of a sudden of all places there's no Million, rice in India yeah, millions yeah. of Indians died you know yeah, genocide yeah it's just so crazy man imperialism I mean it's, it's, bad. it's fucking horrible but like he did kind of bring it back like he didn't like he went easy on me like he was kind of saying sorry to like Indian people as a whole he was I think he meant to say. I was rough on your people for a period of my career. Yeah. But he was also like trying to teach me, like, be aware of what you're doing to these people here now. Yeah. You know? Which was, I think, very important for me to see it in that lens. And he was, he was an older dude. He was like in his mid 40s, like. Been around the block. Yeah. Yeah. Experienced, high level, suit and tie guy, you know. So what's next for you, man? So you're, you're moving to Chicago next week. Moving to Chicago. Your girlfriend lives out there. Girlfriend lives out there. What does she do? She's a professor at the University of Chicago, and uh, she likes it. But yeah, moving to Chicago, uh, trying to get a job at the mission continues. Uh, one of the things that I realized when I left the military and became a police officer, I kind of like stuck with other cops who were also veterans, and I liked the veteran community, but like I looked at it through a weird lens for a long time, right? I looked at it as this like right-wing thing, like if you're a veteran, you have to be a Trump supporter and you know drive a large pickup truck and hate people of color, and even though my experience in the military was nothing like that, the veteran community from an outside perspective did seem like that. Yeah. So I did a lot of things to avoid it. Like I didn't join the VFW. I didn't go to veteran-centric events, you know. In the police force, because I'm a cop and all my friends are veterans, I was like, I already have this camaraderie. Everybody I hang out with is a veteran already. I yeah. don't need to do these external things. But then I met you and some other people. And I was like, these people are more liberal than I am. Right. You know, I was completely wrong about all these assumptions I had. Well, we had them too. I mean, that's yeah. why like young vets don't go to VFWs and yeah. legions, man, because yeah. it's like that older mentality. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing about post 9-11 vets is like, we're still millennials, man. Yeah. Like yeah. we have Lauren Del Ritchie sitting here yeah. on the conservative side, yeah. by no means as conservative as veterans of any other era. Yeah. Cause she still has millennial tendencies. Yeah. Sees unarmed black kid get shot, gets very upset yeah. about it, yeah. right? Even our conservative guys are pretty socially progressive even if they're republican they have a very firm moral compass and they seem to be led by that more than any kind of political affiliation yeah and i think a lot of us do we, we've all are disillusioned with the wars we fought in and yeah. some to some degree yeah. it may be very minor maybe very major yeah but like we all can fall back on the idea of like we fought for our people yeah and everyone is our people regardless of their color their religion yeah their... that vision of america is very unique and it's very pure right when you sacrifice that much for your country you really do want it to be the best yeah you don't want it to be a hateful and angry country because that's not what you fought nah. for Those you, you look at everybody as like your teammates like yeah. everyone's on the american yeah. team here like let's let's and be I, cool and that's what i get from like so I have a medium amount of combat experience, but some of the guys I work with have a lot of combat experience and they are the most, they're like, we will treat these communities fairly. Yeah. I did not fight and lose my friends so we can come back here and treat other Americans like shit. Yeah. You know? So I was like, oh, maybe there is another side to being a veteran. And now I want to get more involved in that space. Are you going to go to school too? Yeah. Yeah, what do you yeah. what do you uh, think about? I'm thinking uh, masters in history. Uh, no, 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 no. That mistake has been made once. Uh, so I'm thinking about public policy and or a business degree. Cool. So what are, what do you want to? What are your aspirations? What do you uh, wanna I want to work for an organization that does community impact, but in not just like in a purely political way. There's a lot of organizations that do community impact, like these rights matter, and I think that's really important work. You know, 
activism. I don't want to do activism. I want to do more like hands-on community projects. So you want to work for like a nonprofit, like direct services almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where you can see, like it's like I worked for Meals on Wheels, the first job I had. And yeah. It's like I physically gave yeah. old people that were homebound meals, right? Like, yeah. and I felt good about that. Like that yeah. was like a very self-serving job for me, right? Because yes. like it filled a hole that was left by leaving the military. Yes. So that's the kind of thing you want to do. I want to go into poor communities and uh, rebuild them. Like I have some guilt in just by being a cop for so long. I have locked away many fathers and mothers and separated them from their children, hundreds of them, you know? And that's something I had to do. It's cause it's my job and it was necessary in a lot of ways too, but Maybe it's time for me to do some other stuff, help the community in a different way. All right, we got like five more minutes. I want to cover a couple like quick fire things, yeah. man. So uh, border security, yeah. like enforcing laws, like you're a cop, right? So yeah. we have laws in the books for a reason. Yeah. You want to enforce those. How do you feel about like separating families at the borders? It's a horrible thing. Like you can't tell someone's future and destiny by judging them when they're at their most desperate, trying to escape to a better place, right? I can't imagine, like, when I came to this country, even though it was legally, you know, being separated from my mom. And I was 12. That's fairly old. Yeah. You know? Even at, like, 15, when my visa expired, I couldn't imagine being separated from my mom. That is not the image of America that the world should have. America should be the light, right? The place that's better than other places because of its values. The border, to me, is, like, it's not anything. It's not anything that's important. The symbol of America being a place that's open and hopeful and beautiful for everybody is way more important. Yeah. And if we lose, you know, some level of border protection for that, I'm okay with it, you know? So I mean, I'm against separating families. So how do you feel about sanctuary cities, right? Because like I said, we got laws in the books. Yeah. How do you feel about mayors saying, well, we're going to ignore these laws? Well, I think it's fine because there's still criminal conduct laws, right? It doesn't mean if you're a sanctuary city that if you're a murderer, just because you're Mexican, you get a pass on it. Right. You're still... That's the misconception. Yeah, you're still held to every law that happens here. You're just not specially set aside with a different set of laws because you're from a different country. Yeah. We see how badly that worked out in history. We did that for the Jews and, you know, in yeah. Germany. We're not going to pick a people because of their skin color or their birth origin, you know, and be like, you have a separate set of laws that applies specifically to you and you alone. Uh, it's it's not good, and I'm not over your it. seven years. How many run-ins have you had with people undocumented committing crimes? One, one, one. And what was that? Uh, it was an Irish guy. He got in a bar fight. <laughs> it was an Irish guy. Yeah, it wasn't got, even a, it wasn't even he, a Hispanic guy. <laughs> and prototypically, he got in a bar fight, and his visa was expired. He told me that his visa was expired and he'd been here illegally for a few years. And that's, see, that's another thing most people don't realize. The yeah. overwhelming majority that's of illegal most, immigrants yeah. are people that are on expired visas, like Officer Chatterjee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, were, you were being sanctuaried yourself at some yeah, point. Yeah, exactly, exactly, uh, yeah. So, yeah. That's weird to think, you were an illegal, you were an illegal immigrant. Yeah, uh, for a period I was. I'm an American You came here now. illegally, but came then became an illegal immigrant. For a period then of time. Then joined the army as an illegal immigrant. Yeah, and then uh, became an American citizen. That's the American success story, yeah, right? Yeah, and you never know. That's what I tell people. Uh, I did some campaigning for Connor Lamb, as you did, and I, I went to an event where Rick Saccone was, and I told him, I was like, you know, not all illegals are bad. Some of them join the army and become cops afterwards. And he was like, find me an example of that. And he walked away. I didn't have a chance to say, it was me. It's me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. Okay, the last question. Mm -hmm. uh, 
as we've determined unequivocally, police are terrible across the board. <laughs> no redeeming qualities, Bob. No, I'm just joking. Uh, what's the one thing you're going to miss most about being a cop? So, despite whatever you know, bad political or ideological things that are going on in police departments, I still see them put themselves at risk for the public all the time, and I can't explain it. There's a cop that I worked with in one of the zones I worked in who is a hard racist. He is a complete racist. And I thought of him in a very low way. And I remember them being a house fire in a poor neighborhood. And I remember the firemen saying, it's too dangerous to go in there. And I remember him taking his shirt off and running into that fire and pulling out a little black boy. I don't get it. I thought he hated black people. He was ready to die yeah. to save this boy. And I asked him, I was like, what the hell is that all about? He was like, it's my job, man. My life is not as valuable as theirs. A lot of cops feel that way. Yeah, you swear an oath, right? Yeah. And so. People are complicated too. We, we lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah, that's what I don't, it's, it's, it's something I still can't wrap my mind around, you know? It's, it's these guys who you think are like these tough guys and they're like, you know, doing some of the things that aren't great, but they're still risking their lives for complete strangers on yeah. a regular basis. How does that add up? I, I don't know. I don't know. That's why I'm not like abolish the police. I think most cops are great. You know, there's some systematic things that are bad. And if you get down to it, it's really the system that's bad. It's not the cops on the street. It's the system that is in function now. And, and most cops are really like, so you're involved. We can't talk about any specifics yeah. in a case right now where yeah. there was some misconduct at the city level. Yeah. But it's my understanding that most of the cops within the department are on your side that they... Yeah. That's the, the thing about the thin blue line. The right? cogs in the machine realize the machine's fucked up, right? Yeah. The biggest complainers about these, like these racist 911 calls, it's the other cops. I hear cops all the time, like, I wish I didn't have to do the bidding of these people, right? Once you're on the one side of the blue line, there are cops who are needlessly victimized too, right? There's a case, uh, It's I think it's out of South Carolina, a very uh, kind of uh, activist type, famous vocal woman accuses a police officer of raping her and Sean King makes it viral says this police officer raped this woman during a traffic stop and like you know his life is destroyed and he's you know I think almost fired by his department and all this stuff basically what turns out being he had his body camera on and the department at first refused to look at it he was like look at my body camera look at my body camera and they try to fire him he's like threatened a bunch because it goes through, viral through social media Finally, he takes the video and uploads it to YouTube himself. It's the woman saying, getting, getting a DUI and saying, if you don't let me go from this DUI, I'm gonna accuse you of rape, so you better let me go. And he's like, nope, you're super drunk, you're a danger to the society right now, to yeah. the public, and he arrests her. Doesn't rape her, treats her very respectfully, almost lost his job, his life was destroyed for a period of time. And that's so, insane because I'm reactionary on Twitter. Like, and I, I generally, I like Sean King, yeah. but I mean, he does some shit like that from time to time, yeah. man. He'll... Well, he had to eat his words on that one. Yeah. To uh, produce. Sometimes some. he would share stuff. And that's uh, that's our biggest problem in society, man. Yeah. Like, we share things without vetting it first. Yeah. Um, and certainly, it's not a Sean King problem. Like, no, 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 no. Literally, yeah. I've done it. You've done it. Oh, Lauren's done, done it. it. Yeah. Every, we have all done it. Yeah. We've all shared something that we wanted it to be true because yeah. it, it fit our worldview and narrative. And we yeah. shared it. And then we're like, fuck should have read the paper first. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I do give cops the benefit of the doubt. Even in my experience, you know, seeing some bad things, more often than not, the cop's been the good guy. It's true, it's, it is true, but. 
you don't have to have a million cops who are racist and bad doing bad things. You do one or two, one or two of them enough will ruin the whole system because it's the government. Right? Yeah. People say like, oh, there's all these shootings in Chicago. Why do you care about this one cop killing this one guy? Because it's the government doing it. Yeah. You know, I have a different standard for criminal versus my own government right. that I pay taxes to. Right. So there's yeah, just, yeah, there should be a separate standard for criminals versus the people that are protect you from the criminals. Yeah. Uh, you have any last words you want to? Oh, that came out weird. Not any last words. You have any uh, final thoughts before uh, we leave? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of blame put on local police departments about what happened. Pittsburgh police is a good department. Obviously, there are some people who aren't great, but 99% of them are really, really great people who are looking out for the community. Do you feel that the mayor justifiably took fire for his tweeting about that before sympathy for the family? Absolutely, because it's not... The police department's a good department in Pittsburgh, and um, I was proud to be a part of it. But the emphasis is not on who should we protect now. It's on recognizing the injustice. I thought it was very, very callous of him to post that. Yeah, tone so, deaf at a minimum. Yeah, so I, I don't support him on like, that. Like, I understand him wanting to correct the narrative because yeah. national news outlets were saying yes. Pittsburgh Police Department. Yes. But which, the way he said it, you know. To an outsider, what's the difference between Pittsburgh and East Pittsburgh, yes. right? Like, nobody yes. gets shit. I didn't know East Pittsburgh was a thing for, like, the first three years I was here. Yeah. I just thought it was, a like, geographical <laughs> a area of Pittsburgh. East part of Pittsburgh. Yeah. You were talking about the marginalization. Mm -hmm. um, the guy you were talking to, um, how he, you know, and then you were riding in the car with him, mm -hmm. and he kind of, you know, you, you had that moment. Yeah. Where do you start to reverse that how do, how do you reverse the marginalization of, of societies like this of these neighborhoods where these things happen a lot because I mean if there's any way me as a person mm -hmm. in the time I have left on this earth if there was anything I could do to help I, I would and yeah. you said you want to work for Mission Continues go in and yeah. get your hands dirty and work on these communities yeah. is it grassroots movements like that that you think will help or is I, I think else? so I think so I think the Mission Continues great because it's doing a leadership course that will build the leaders future to do this but what we need is systemic change, right? Uh, it's The problems that exist in these neighborhoods are systemic to the level that it's almost enforced by the government. Bad schools, bad living conditions, poor diet, food deserts, all these things compile. I remember there was a guy who was dead now, a young kid who was uh, killed in, uh, in a gang shooting. And I remember dealing with him from when he was 14 till he was about 19. And I remember if anything weird happened in the neighborhood, I could go ask him and he would remember the license plate. Once I asked him like, hey, how do you remember all these license plates? And he was like, I don't know. I just, if I think back to something, I can see everything that's happening. And I was like, you know, that's a photographic memory mm -hmm. that you have. And he was just like, yeah, but maybe if I wasn't born here, I could do something with it. And it's true. You know, he is dealing with, the, he's playing the cards he's dealt. You know, we have to improve those cards for those people. Uh, and those people can't, aren't just people of color. Anybody who's poor and marginalized falls into that category. Mm -hmm. We need to stop treating people like they're lesser, give them economic opportunity. And that starts with building better communities, building better schools. So yeah, One block at a time, right? It's yeah, not like an it's easy true. Fix. Yeah. And this question's going to suck. Please don't hate me. Yeah. What would you have done if you were the officer that pulled over the car with Antoine Rose in it? Would, I know you can't speculate. Hindsight's 2020. But I will say I am damn proud of the cops that I have worked with who have pulled over people with guns in the car hundreds of times and have dealt with it in a much better way than that officer dealt with it. The cops who are still taking that risk and 
you know, arresting people without taking a life. Uh, one of my favorite cops in the police department is this guy from Southie, from Boston. And uh, grew up in Boston, worked in Boston PD for a little bit, then his wife moved here. Somebody who is a cop because he wants to be, not because of the money. And he is one of the top drug cops in the narcotics unit. He always tells me, man, he was like, I assume risk every time I put on this uniform. And just because I put on this uniform doesn't give me the right to take someone's life that I don't have to. There's some risk to being a cop. This police officer put all the risk on that other party without gauging the situation properly. So I don't know what I would have done, but I've seen a lot of cops who are really good do it much better than he did. Okay, we recording? So, this is Nick Grimes and you're listening to Longst War. Ah oh, fuck. Messed up again. Let's do this one more time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.